Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Uh, so these are all things where I think by looking at those failures as not just failures, but lessons, if I can go to that and say, okay, I made a mistake there. Uh, it's a mistake where if I could go back, I would like to correct that. I can't do that. So the next best thing is to take that lesson, learn from it, apply it to a future event so that when I get in that situation again, it won't happen the way it did. And now I know that I've convinced myself I've ran through the the process of reflecting and analyzing things that were actual problems versus perceived problems and just fine-tuned it a little bit more. And all of those end up, I think, providing the the right the right process and the right tools to get that race where you feel like you kind of did everything right or pushed past those few levels you had before, like I was talking about before. And then when you have that, all of a sudden, all those previous failures don't feel like failures as much as they just feel like stepping stones or lessons. And I've been fortunate enough to have, be able to, I guess, process it that way enough times where now that to me is the norm or that's the process. So my default is, okay, something went wrong. Where's the lesson here? I need to find that out. There's some value in this, this failed attempt, even though on paper it may not look like it right now. Therefore, if I can find that, that's going to be a gem that I can use. Um, and once I think you can make that kind of your default mindset, it comes a lot easier. Eating better is easy with Factors delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. I'm Zach Bitter, and this is the Tom Roland Podcast. What's going on, everybody? 
Welcome to the podcast today. We got a guy on the podcast today that I've been wanting to get on for a long time. He is an ultra marathon runner. His name is Zach Bitter. He holds the American record and the world record for 100 miles. 100 miles. Running 100 miles. It's one thing to be able to run 100 miles um, just to cover the distance successfully, but Zach has been able to do it faster than anyone else in the world, and um, that is 11 hours and 19 minutes. I find that to be absolutely incredible. That's a 647 pace, I think, and um, you know that's faster than most people can run a single mile, and uh, he did it for 100 of them consecutively. Um, Zach is a cool guy. I hooked up with Zach through our mutual sponsor, Buff, that makes a great face masks that we wear in the in the keys when we're fishing arm sleeves so many awesome products and zach wears the same products as well and um he does it in the running world and um anyway what a fascinating conversation that i had with him just about mindset about where his mind goes when he's on these long runs um training uh, nutrition. He has a different nutrition philosophy than a lot of runners. And um, man, just a really, really interesting guy. A lot of comparisons actually to fishing, to actually uh, other sports and uh, how you can apply the lessons that he's learned through ultra marathoning to your own life, to your own nutrition, to anything. It's a very cool conversation. Really happy to have Zach Bitter on the podcast, and here we go. All right, Zach, I'm glad you're here, man. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks a bunch for having me on, Tom. Well, I gotta say, I'm a I'm a big fan. I've been listening to you on a lot of other podcasts, and um, I have uh, I, I don't know. I'm just I'm fascinated with what you've been able to do. I think that it's amazing. I have just enough running experience to to understand the difficulty of of what you're taking on and what you do and what you've accomplished. And, um, I ran a marathon or several marathons and, and I've done a lot of, you know, 20, 20 mile runs and stuff like that, but never nothing, nothing like you. I mean, you've set the world record and the American record, um, for a hundred miles. You did that on a treadmill as well <laughs> as a, as a track. I mean, my gosh, that is amazing. What, what, uh, how did you get started in this endeavor? I saw that, saw that it was like, uh, tw- 2010 or something. You started ultra racing. Yeah, it was kind of interesting. I'd, I'd been a big fan of endurance for a few years at that point. Uh, I ran in high school and college and took running pretty seriously. Once I got to be a college athlete and and just kind of learned a lot more about the sport. And I found myself just kind of looking around on the internet for a race to train for in the fall of 2010. And when I went in, I was thinking probably I'd find a marathon. I didn't even know ultra marathons existed in Wisconsin where I was living (laughs) at the time. And I stumbled upon this, this event in just kind of the Southeast part of the state that was maybe a little over an hour from my house at the time. So I was like, Oh, wow. 50 miler uh, maybe I'll just give it a shot. And I had, I was aware of ultra marathons. I had read like Dean Karnas's book and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So I knew they were out there. I just didn't realize there were any in Wisconsin. And I didn't realize that there'd be one sitting in front of me on a computer screen that I could potentially sign up for <laughs> that year. Uh, but for whatever reason I thought, okay, let's just give it a shot, see what happens. And you know, if I don't like it, I don't have to do one again. Or if I, 
feel like I'm not ready to kind of take on ultras yet. I can just push it down, down the road and maybe do them when I'm in my thirties or something like that. And, uh, I went there, did that race, uh, actually won it. So that was pretty uh, reinforcing, I would say. And, uh, that kind of got me hooked. It got me interested. Then I, after I did that race, I was pretty certain I was going to start doing more ultra marathons sooner than I had originally planned or I'd ever thought I would. Uh, but that was where, where I originally got hooked. I ran, um, I mean, I, uh, I think that it's interesting that you just kind of looked for this extra challenge. What distances were you training for and, and competing when you were in the, in college? Yeah. In college, it was basically a 5k to 10k spread really? for the most part. Our cross country teams would run 8k for the most part. And then when we'd get around a track and or track in the second half of the year, I was mostly a 5k, 10k guy. I would do a 3k every once in a while, just like a workout, but I wasn't, I wasn't going to do anything too too incredible at that distance. So, uh, yeah, it was, uh, a shorter end of endurance as it is in most collegiate experiences, I think, unless you're like NAIU where I think they do the marathon and some of their national championships, but, uh, yeah, it was that. And then after college, I started getting into some longer stuff, but more out of just interest. I was more or less sick of speed work for a little bit there after doing that basically throughout the collegiate experience. And the workout that I always looked forward to was the long run. So I started just basically doing a lot of long runs and that, that led me into uh, doing a few marathons just off of what I guess you consider kind of like base training. Mm -hmm. And then I did a few that I trained a little more specifically for. I still, would have liked to have maybe done a more kind of detailed higher end training block preparing for a marathon. Um, but ultimately by the time I got around to reintroducing meaningful speed work into my training, again, I was basically in the context of doing the things that I think prepare you for some of the longer, slow stuff that you end up doing on the day of for an ultra marathon. And, and that's kind of where, where I've been focusing most of my energy <laughs> since then. That was one of the questions that I had for you. Like, you know, you see all the, all the different training that you're doing and you got this transatlantic thing that you're getting ready to train up for. And, and you've been pretty, pretty, um, descriptive on a lot of the podcasts, like Mark, Mark Bell's podcast. You, I, I really enjoyed that. That was, that was really good. But you were talking about all the different types of training that you do and you, you're pretty scientific with, with your training and, and what you're, what you're doing. And you've obviously learned a, a, ton about diet and nutrition and everything. Um, but one of the things that I was going to ask you was which one of the, what type of workout do you look at and kind of dread or cringe when you <laughs> see that coming up? Because I mean, some people would be like, well, obviously that's going to be the 40 mile run, but I don't know if that's what it is for you. It sounds like maybe, I don't know. You said the speed work was, you were kind of getting tired of that. Um, what, what is that for you? Yeah, no, that's a great question. It's, it's funny because I've trained a few different kind of strategies over the years. And the one that I've probably done the most of the last few years is a setup where you kind of, you, you categorize the different intensities that you're planning on focusing on and you really fine tune them. And then you kind of move from one to the next. So you're going least specific to most specific. So for like ultra marathons, that would mean like short interval stuff kind of earlier in the season longer intervals, tempo runs near the middle. And then as you're kind of spending that last four to six weeks before you taper, you're just putting a lot of your energies into that long run development race, specific intensities, the things that you're going to use most directly on the day of the event. 
So I always find when I do that cycle, it's by the time I get to the end of one particular intensity is when I start kind of thinking, ah, this is the one I hate the most. (laughs) And then you get excited about starting the other one. But generally speaking, it's been when I just blend the stuff, when I do a more like traditional buildup where you're doing like short intervals one day, tempo run or long intervals another day, and then a long run on the weekend or something like that. In those contexts, it's usually the short intervals, the ones that I, uh, dread the most um they do offer a, an interesting payout afterwards i would say like they're always the ones which you're just like you get a little more anxiety getting out heading out for it you always are in the back of your mind thinking oh well maybe maybe i shouldn't do this today you're looking for excuses just to bail out on it uh and then you do it and you're just like oh man i'm really glad i did that one so i do really value that kind of uh uh, delayed reward, I guess, with, with those, even though they are maybe some of them, the, the least one, the ones I look forward to the least. Whereas with the long runs, I more or less look forward to those for the most part, unless I'm really getting a little too fatigued from training or doing a little too much of them, in which case then you start kind of losing a little bit of the interest in there. Yeah. One of the things that you talked about on, on Mark Bell's podcast too, was, was, it was it was interesting because he he does a, such a good job on his podcast of taking people from other sports and bringing them in and kind of comparing not just mindset but but training strategies and different things and and they made some good um correlations between like even powerlifting and and what you're doing and one of the things that that you guys were talking about was was just kind of shaking it up a little bit and doing something different and maybe you get to a point where you're where you're kind of tired of something or you've lost the the fire um for maybe it was like what you were doing in college like that 5k kind of distance and all the training that goes into that and then then you you start into something else and it launches you into this new thing it reinvigorates you about the sport even though it's like it's almost like a different sport like the 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 requirements that you have to have for running 100 miles versus running running a 5k really fast it's almost like two different sports really. And the same thing happens like in fishing, like, like that's where like we got introduced through our, our mutual sponsor buff, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. I want to, I want to talk to you about what you do with them, but, um, that's, that's how I, you know, got to, got to meet you and everything is through them. And, and my sport is, is fishing really, and very competitive fishing in, in the state of Florida. And it can be very physical pushing a boat with a stick into the wind all day. So that's my, um, interest in fitness is how it benefits me in my, in my career. And that started with running, but even in fishing where you you're doing something like tarpon fishing for this one particular species every single day for hundreds of days in a row, you get kind of tired of it. And you're like, man, if I could just break away from this and do something else for a little bit and you go and you try a different species and it reinvigorates you about this whole thing and you start learning more and you start being more creative and inventive and and it just kind of takes you down a different path sometimes or you get a new boat that does something different and it sounds kind of like that's what happened to you with with this this um opportunity of trying to you know seek out this this longer distance. And, uh, it was kind of interesting how you guys were talking about that, but did that seem to, do you think that you would have had the, the longevity in the sport if you hadn't of of kind of tried some of these longer distances? Yeah, it's a good question. And I love the comparison too, because I think that's probably the reality for anything that you 
put enough focus into where you have the the mindset of knowing all the ins and outs and what's actually available where, uh, you know, running people often probably think running, you know, it is what it is, whether you're doing a 5k or a hundred mile or a 24 hour or whatever it happens to be, or like your kids like fishing is if you're like, well, fishing is fishing, but you could be doing river fishing with waders, or you could be on a boat out on a lake, you could be on the ocean, all that stuff. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, part of the reason why I've been able to stay excited with the sport is that range of diversity where, you know, my high school experience was quite a bit different than my collegiate experience, even though the distances weren't that different Then my post-collegiate experience was quite a bit different than my collegiate experience. So there's always been like these different chapters that have allowed me to kind of uh, re-energize myself. And then the career in running that has lasted the longest for me so far has been my ultra running one. And that one tends to be the most diverse in the sense that there's just such a range of different events you can do. And even if you just look at terrain mm-hmm. between you can mm-hmm. do these on a track, you can do them on a road, you can do them on trail mountain. And then, you know, when you get out into the, get out into the trail side of things, it's just like a wide range of different types of trails. So there's an, and that's just the train. And then you look at distance where, you know, 50 K hundred mile, everything, you know, that you can kind of throw at it. Uh, is there and available for you. So I really was probably fortunate that when I first kind of did my first ultra, it was when the sport was kind of heading on another really big uptick. So the the popularity of ultra marathon running has just grown like exponentially since the, since I started. And that has opened up a lot more opportunities in terms of the different types of racing to do and things like that. So what I find is you know, I'll pick races that I like the most and like types of things that I like to do the most. And those will usually be kind of something that is going to be included in my racing and preparation on a yearly basis. But I often after usually if it's, you know, getting close to a couple of years of focusing on like a specific type of uh, racing, I need to kind of take a break and just step back and say, Hey, I'm going to train for something that's different enough from what I have doing so that when I start the process, there's a much wider, uh, gap between where I'm at and where I need to be. So I have like a greater return on that kind of like incentive of the day to day of seeing improvements being developed and just kind of removing some of the, you know, the small things that just kind of like dull out on you as you do things over and over again. Mm -hmm. So you know, my best example of that was in 2019 when I, I stopped uh, for about a full season preparing for these flat runnable 100 milers and trained for the San Diego 100, which is more trail, technical, rocky type terrain. And um, just kind of put my focus on that. And that introduced just a lot of different training environments. Some of the workout intensities were very similar, but they were in different areas. And, you know, running hard uphill is going to be different than running fast on flat ground it opened up a different set of routes that I hadn't been doing as frequently. So now there's that kind of fresh set of like training areas that I didn't have to be like, Oh, what route am I going to do today? And then you're like, Oh, this one again, I've done it like 15 times in the last three months. (laughs) Uh, So that's always kind of exciting. And then uh, I definitely underestimated how much of an impact that would have on kind of the refresh set on my mind. So then Later that year, when I finished that race, recovered from it, decided to build up for, you know, some more runnable stuff that later that year, I was really surprised when I started doing those workouts again. It was like, oh, this is, this is really cool. This feels like I'm kind of doing it for the first time again. And, hmm. uh, you see those, uh, you know, your old fitness catch back up on that particular environment. And, 
uh, you just, you have, you've removed yourself from it long enough where you start to start to miss it and crave it a bit. So I think if you get curious enough to try a lot of different things and you can even do this within the same, and you, we can probably look at it as there's the environment. So the train you're going to race in is one lever you can pull to add some variance, yeah. but then the way you prepare too. uh, you know, I don't necessarily think there's one perfect way to train for an ultra marathon. I think there's, uh, there's, there's probably quote unquote perfect ways for individuals to prepare, but ultimately that's going to be, uh, different from one person to the next. And, um, there's also a lot of iterations of different types of workouts you can do that are going to essentially get you the same thing from a physiological standpoint. So at that point, it's like, if you're just going to roll out the same 12 to 15 workouts, every training block, training block after training block, you do have to ask yourself, you know, am I going to actually maximize what I'm going to get out of this workout? If I'm just even a few percentage less motivated than I would, if I just kind of add a little more spice and flavor right. to this workout where I'm going to get excited about it and give that extra 2% because it's different, it's new. Uh, and that's where I think it gets kind of interesting when I'm coaching others as well as kind of just trying to get myself like worked up to to do specific things and get ready for races. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Yeah, there's certainly a big difference between trying to set a world record or trying to, um, um, I don't know, do something on your level and then someone else trying to just maintain fitness. But a lot of the same things apply. Like when you get bored just trying to, um, you know, go to the gym and get a workout in, it you you get bored and it's easy mm -hmm. to skip and then you kind of backslide and then the next thing you know, you hadn't been there in a long time. Whereas if you can keep it kind of interesting to you in some way or another, either seeing improvement, um, noticeable improvement or something that is like shaking it up a little bit, that sure does make a, a giant difference in someone's um, ability to, to maintain that. But when you, did you like want to, um, excel at this sport at the, at the highest level, like, like you had it in mind that you might want to try for a world record. And then that led you to the type of flat runnables that you were doing. Is that, is that, what was the evolution there to, to finding this, the flat runnable and that that's where your sweet spot was? Yeah, that, that's kind of another funny thing, kind of, uh, same, similar to when I 
did my first ultra marathon where I wasn't even really aware that those existed in the state of Wisconsin. <laughs> I was also, I was equally as unaware that there were like track ultra and like road race type stuff. I think I probably had seen some and was semi aware, at least on the road side of it. But, uh, I, my, my mindset at the time was just basically, this is mostly a trail sport and that side of the sport's certainly grown a lot. So there was a lot more opportunities to do those type of events when I first got into it. So when I did my first 50 miler, it was a 50 mile trail run. Uh, then the next one I did was that same race the following year. I did a flat runnable hundred or I'm sorry, a flat runnable 50 miler, uh, later that year. And I kind of got a little bit of a, an idea of just like, Oh, okay. So this type of terrain is much more similar to what I'm training on. So maybe I should skew a little more towards that, but I hadn't gotten around to really like hunting down opportunities within that until around 2013 where, uh, I recognized, oh, I shouldn't say 2013. I did a, some 50 milers that were more road-based, but even the road-based ones had a fair bit of like elevation. They weren't like marathon race course flat where, right. you know, I think it's, that's the funny thing. I think like when you get into the road running, uh, circuit at the Olympic distance, it's all like a lot of it is people, people are avoiding hilly courses. Mm -hmm. It's like, if it's a hilly course, it's gotta have some sort of like other, a draw to it. Cause you're going to miss the people who are going for their PR. If you, if you put a bunch of like, uh, different variables in there, yeah, like, slow you like down. maybe like the big sir marathon that's supposed to be the most Perfect. beautiful marathon or something like that, that somebody would choose yeah. to do that just for the experience rather than, I think I can run my fastest marathon ever here, which would be maybe like Disney or, or, um, mm -hmm. I mean, that one was super flat. That was one that I ran the Disney <laughs> it's yeah, as, yeah. As, as flat as a pancake. It's Orlando. There's no, mm -hmm. no elevation change there. Yeah. You get an overpass here and there, but yeah. other than that, it's flat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I did, uh, I did what I would consider my first, uh, just like pancake flat ultra in 2013 in Chicago is the Chicago lakefront 50 miler. And it was basically this, like you would go, uh, 10 kilometers out and 10 kilometers back for about 12 and a half miles. And then you essentially just did that four times. And I remember like running it thinking like, wow, I felt like I had just everything click on a slightly different level. Just like I had, I had one more gear essentially. And I, I that's where I kind of made the connection. I think where how much of a different specificity of the environment you prepare in when it's that similar on race day, you can kind of pull yourself forward a little bit further. So, uh, I lucked out at that point where that race result was just good enough where the, the race directors for, for era Vipa at the time, uh, Jamil and Nick Curry, who, uh, put on this event every December called the desert solstice track invitational, where the, basically it's an invite only event. And they, they bring in folks to try to chase age group records, world records, American records from basically 50 kilometers all the way up to 24 hours. And, uh, Nick had reached out to me after that and said, Hey, we saw your time at the Chicago Lakefront. We think it'd be cool to try going for, you know, you know, whatever it is you want to go for at, at desert solstice. I think they may have, uh, mentioned the hundred mile might be a, an interesting one to try out since I had only finished 100 miler at that point, they probably were thinking at the 24 hour might be a stretch for him quite at this point and they would have been right so <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that they did offer the 100 mile up to me first and uh yeah so i went there thinking 
I had just run five hours and 12 minutes for 50 miles. And the American record had just gotten set like a, a month earlier by a guy named John Olson. He had been the first American to break 12 hours and hundred miles, ran 1159 and, and some change. Wow. And I remember thinking, well, if I could do 50 and 512, I could slow down to 545 for the first 50 mile and still have wiggle room. <laughs> so then if I, even if I run like, you know, 610 for the second 50 mile, now I'm, I'll, I'll be under it. So I thought that's re- a reasonable goal. And whether that was uh, like naivete or not is anyone's guess. But, uh, you know, I went there with that goal or that expectation on myself. And I kind of paced myself accordingly with that strategy. And and that's where I kind of uh, probably had a race that was recognized a little more nationally versus just like, oh, cool. I, you know, my friends and family and some of the people in the general region were aware of who I was and what I was doing. And uh, wanted to follow that along to now people are kind of interested in this, this kid from Wisconsin who ran 11 hours and 47 minutes on this track out in, out in Arizona. And, and uh, that got me really interested in that particular aspect of, uh, of the sport of ultra marathon. And I decided kind of after that event that I wanted to make that part of my, part of my training and racing over, over my career was to just to see how fast I could run a hundred miles on these like really controlled environments mm-hmm. where, where you really know it's really just you and what mistakes you make or don't make and how you kind of plan that. And you just, you, you remove a lot of the obstacles and that introduces new challenges as well as it gets you to the finish line quicker. doesn't necessarily make it easier, but it makes it a little more, I think, comparable from one year to the next or one generation to the next when you can kind of control a lot of the variables because then it's less about, Oh, well, I ran this time on this course, but it was 20 degrees cooler. So yeah, technically right. the guy who I ran 10 minutes faster than probably had a better race, you know, just there's a lot less of that. And I thought that was kind of interesting. So at, there was, there was a period of time there where you saw the light, you were like, I think I can, if that's the record, I think I can beat that. Like, what was that like when you, when you really, um, kind of identified that and then what steps do you do to be like, well, I would have to knock off, you know, whatever, how many minutes, 20, 30 minutes over the hundred miles to beat this record. And then what do you do from there? Like, that's, that's what I was thinking about with your story. And then, you know, the one other thing before you answer that, just to let people know, like what we're talking about and how difficult this is. I mean, I ran... Um, I tried to qualify for Boston. I ran a three hour and 13 minute marathon at Disney and I missed it by three minutes. So the Boston qualifying time is kind of like, it's kind of a benchmark. I mean, it's a, it's a good benchmark. If you can qualify for Boston, you're, you're doing pretty good. Like that's a pretty good marathon. So for me, that was seven minutes and 15 seconds, I think is a three hour and 13 minute, or maybe it's a, a, a couple of seconds more. If I had run seven fifteen, I might've made it. So you're running a hundred miles in 11 hours and 19 minutes is your, is your best record. Is that right? So yeah, that is like what? 635 miles, 647 and a half, 647. So you're running a hundred miles, every single mile faster than I was able to run 26 miles <laughs> and faster than most people can run a single mile. Like that is unbelievable. And obviously it's unbelievable. It's a world record, but that, I mean, just to set the, the, the expectation, it's not just about covering a hundred miles. What, what Zach is doing is, is doing it at a pace that is 
really incredibly impressive, I think. Well, obviously impressive. It's a world record, but that to care, to keep that up is incredible. So to get back to what I asked you before, like when you saw the light that you thought this was possible, like, where do you go from there? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say, you know, breaking the American record in a hundred miles. And then I actually broke the 12 hour world record that day, which I wasn't even aware of going into that event. I didn't know there was a 12 hour world record. They told me that at mile 90. And that was an interesting experience too. Cause I kind of had this shift in mindset then as to like, Oh, I've got kind of tandem goals going here. And that really helped me kind of speed up in those final miles. Uh, but after that, you know, after running 1147, you know, I, I was aware of the world record for hundred miles going into the race. I didn't necessarily think that was a, something I would be realistically able to target at the time. So I didn't, but after running 1147, I was like, okay, well, that's the next step, right? That's the next one is how do I find a way to, to shave 19 minutes off how I did. And, you know, I was I'm trying to remember how old I was at the time it would have been uh, 27, I think 26, 27. So, uh, you know, I was young enough where I was just thinking to myself, well, this is the first track ultra I've done. Surely I can take 19 minutes off of, you know, a hundred miles with a little bit more training, just knowing what I'm getting into and you taking a few swings at it. So in my mind at that point, it was like, well, I'm going under, um, uh, well, and actually it was 1128 was the world record at the time. So, I was thinking to myself, like, I'll probably try to break this in 2014, 2015 at the latest, <laughs> and, uh, uh, as would, as would, you know, as that oftentimes plays out, I think is, uh, you, you learn that, uh, there's, there's a little more to it than that. And, uh, you do have to have things line up to have a really good day. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you, when you start getting down into the 11 hour range for a hundred miles and dipping under seven minute pace, you know, there's a little thing that goes wrong can be the difference between, you know, running, running, uh, under what the 1128 was or running a good race, but not quite that fast. So I had a few failed attempts along the way. I had one in 2014, actually up at an indoor track in Alaska where, I think I was about as fit and ready to run close to 1119 as I was in 2019 and just had a whole bunch of like digestive issues. Hmm. So I stopped, I think like 17 times in the last, uh, well, it was actually spread. I think it was like 17 times spread out over the course of like the majority of the race, but they were mostly congested near the end of the race. So I had like tons of non-moving time, which is the big variable to try to control for when I've had good races it's usually been between not stopping at all or at most about five minutes. Hmm. And if I can keep it in that tight margin, those are usually the races where I'm able to get like a good chunk underneath 12 hours. So just having a race where you kind of have everything play out well that way, where you're just not stopping, everything's going smoothly, nutrition's going in great. And, uh, your consistent is, is, something that proved to be a little more difficult than I maybe anticipated after that first really, really positive experience. Um, but ultimately it put me in a position to learn a lot along the way. I think every race I did where I didn't break the world record had some value add. Um, some of them were really good races in 2015. I ran 1140 and broke my American record, but I had been on ahead of world record all day through 80 miles and kind of had it fall apart a little bit at the end. Mm. Uh, and you know, that was very much an experience that I carried into the races I did in the future where it was kind of, 
you know, this point of interest where I got to get to that mark at 80 and fix that mistake I made or remedy what I did wrong there. And that became kind of an interesting drive for me to kind of figure out what do I have to do to make that last 20 miles a different experience than it was. And, you know, what causes that? Is it pacing? Is it nutrition? Is it just different training strategy? There's the interesting thing about ultra marathon is I think we've learned a lot over the last 10 years as to like, what is going to move the needle on your performance but they tend to be very big moving things. So uh, there's a lot of wiggle room within them. So there is a lot of questions that are still semi unanswerable. And that is what I think is really exciting about the sport because that puts you in a position where you do have to probably spend a little more time working on yourself at the individual level versus some of these more researched, finely tuned sports and disciplines where when you look at the data and the science behind it, it's like, if you really want to be the best or be great, this is probably the pathway forward. And you need to find a way to make that pathway work. Hmm. And if you don't, you know, you might just get, you'll probably get weeded out. Right. Whereas with ultra marathon, I think there's, I think we're narrowing that path a little bit, but uh, I still think it's a quite wide in terms of the different strategies that can be used at the individual level to get someone to their best uh, based on what we currently know, which is really exciting, exciting to be a part of. Well, it's a pretty interesting time. Like, you know, I mean, it almost seems like the, the sport, not, I wouldn't call it in its infancy, but maybe it's a teenager or something compared to some of these other sports, like, like, you know, um, swimming or, or some, you know, uh, even, even something like wrestling, one of the oldest sports in the, in the world, one of the first Olympic sports and that, you know, or, or football, a big money sport that's studied inside and out and over and over. And this sport, like there's probably not the, I mean, there's certainly not the money that there is in golf or, or, uh, or one of these giant sports, baseball or, or football. And so, but, but then the other thing that's interesting about this is like, you had a mistake at mile 80. So in order to re- to, to learn from that and, and then apply what you've learned over this period of time that you train for it and then go back and repeat that. Now you got to run 80 miles to get, to get to that same spot to see if all this stuff worked. Unlike a football player who, you know, fumbles the snap or fumbles the handoff or something like that. And they can go rep after rep after rep after rep and, and get that done. Or like a CrossFitter can try these little five minute workouts or a 10 minute workout, or maybe a really long workout. It's like 40 minutes. They can do that multiple times, but to get back to that 80 mile, uh, spot, that is like, I don't know. It's, it's super interesting to me because so much of what I enjoy about exercise and, and these pursuits and endurance pursuits is like, not necessarily about the physical, but it's more about the mental game that goes into it and the mental physical game, like how your mind affects your body and how your body affects your mind. And I would think that in your pursuit, and that's one of the reasons why I was so interested in talking to you, because in what you do, it seems like that is everything. I mean, it it would seem to me to be the mental aspect of what you do is, is not that, not that much different than other sports. It's just over such a longer time. And there's so many more things that have a chance to go wrong. Like one of your splits on one of those laps is really slow. And then where do you, where, and you're like, Oh, I'll never make it like this. How do you, how do you in, 
deal with all that? Like, I mean, you're dealing with that for 11 hours. Other people are dealing with that for 30 seconds or five minutes or, or a 45 minute game or, or a three hour marathon or something like that. You're dealing with that with, for 11 hours. Like what is the, the internal monologue like on your training runs, on your races? Like where, where do you go in your mind? Yeah, it's really interesting because I think with like the shorter endurance events, you have this kind of almost like sharper pain or more like laser focus that you can get away with because you won't exhaust your mental strengths over the course of 15 minutes or, you know, whatever the race distance is going to take you from a time standpoint. So it's more like if something happens, you just make a decision and you go boom, boom, boom. And it's all fast. It's all. And then by the time you, you don't have really have time to process any of it until afterwards, Whereas when you're doing a hundred miles, it's so slow relative to the other distances that if you make a mistake or something happens that you weren't expecting, or even if something happens that you are expecting will happen and you don't still know when it might, when that comes up, you have plenty of mental energy and it's slow enough and things are coming (laughs) at you slow enough where you can process it right then and there and kind of weigh the pros and cons and really get in this kind of mental psychological battle with yourself. So the way I look at it is like, you are like everything that happens, you can look at positively or negatively, uh, or at the very least neutrally and how you start directing that in your mind is going to determine kind of how steady and like steadfast you're able to be throughout the course of a race. So to me, it's like, it's not really a question of if something's going to happen that I didn't plan for, or that I didn't expect or didn't know when it would happen in a hundred mile. It's just a question of when is that going to happen and how am I going to respond to it? So uh, it gets difficult to practice that when we're talking about like spots in the race where we're 80 miles in, because for a hundred mile flat runnable race, or maybe I should say a race that's going to be around 12 hours, I'm probably not going to do long runs that are going to stretch much past, like say three, four, maybe five hours. It gets interesting when you get out on the trails, the mountains, I think you can do longer, long runs from a time standpoint, because the impact's a little different Mm -hmm. when you're training for a flat course, like a flat track, the time that you can spend doing a long run, I think comes down a little bit because you just have the exact same mechanic over and over again. And you have much higher risk of like hurting or aggravating something because you're kind of hyper-focusing a lot more on certain areas that are going to take the brunt of that load from that particular mechanic. So, you know, I might do like some back-to-back three to four hour runs, but ultimately I'm getting nowhere near uh, 80 miles or nine to 10 hours in my training. And I have to find a way to practice that kind of battle that's going to go on in my mind between the positives and the negatives in training And the best way I found to do that is just like, once I get into the point of training, it's usually about four to six weeks out from the race or the taper for the race. uh, I'll start building up my long runs where maybe I am doing a Saturday, Sunday combo of like, you know, 30 to 35 miles on both days. I'm at a point there where, especially on that second run, there's probably enough residual fatigue from the training load of the week or the previous weeks where it's going to be a little more uh, difficult to kind of get motivated and get up to running. And then in theory, you can maybe get the physical and mental drainage that you'd experience 70 miles or 80 miles into a hundred mile and just try to replicate it. (laughs) And I just started to use those experiences a little more strategically by putting me in a position where I'm going to pretend for this entire run, 
I'm going 30 miles. I'm starting at 70. I'm going to pretend this whole time. I'm just going to visualize when mile one clicks off. It's like I hit 71 When mile two clicks off. It's like I hit 72 and I'm going to process it the way I would there. And that gave me kind of an opportunity, I think, to just uh, do a lot more kind of trials or dress rehearsals leading into the race. So then when I get to that point in the race, it's less about me reflecting back to last year when I did this or six months ago when I did this, how do I respond? Um, it just gives you a little bit of a chance, I think, to also have some experience with that back and forth in your mind and just develop kind of a a list of uh, different strategies to try to skew your mind positive versus negative. Uh, Cause I think that's the big part on the races where I find myself being able to push past more lows and getting myself like as far as I can get. Um, they're the ones where I'm, I'm just much more precise and quick in redirecting negative stuff. And it gets tough because you'd think it'd be like, Oh, you see a negative thought coming in, recognize that that's not good. Redirect. And that's true, but it's so much different catching that and doing that with a 70 mile brain <laughs> versus a yeah. zero mile brain. So, uh, just the, I mean, it's just a mental energy. Think of your brain as like uh, a fuel tank as well. Every time I have anxiety or nervousness, or I have to process a piece of information, I'm pulling a little bit from that. So 20 miles into a hundred mile, I've got this full tank energy wise from a mental standpoint and physical standpoint. So if I start having second guesses or doubts, it's pretty easy for me to rationalize why I shouldn't let that be a factor. I can easily say, well, look, I did this in training. I did that in training. I'm physically prepared for this. All the data points to I'm doing what I should be doing. Therefore get focused, get back in, in track a little harder to do that at 70 to 80. Um, it just gets harder to dig those positive things out, but ultimately you have to, and the more you can practice it in training, I think the better you're able to do it in a race. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products like Venom heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, Everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. So that's kind of, is, is this sort of like the direction you were asking? Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm just fascinated with what goes on in your head. I'm fascinated with what goes on in my head. It's a, it's a surprise all the time. Like, wow, I didn't expect those thoughts. Like, and, and I feel great today. Why is it that I'm looking at this workout and going, I don't really want to do this. Like, yeah. you know, why, why is it that one day you are just killing it and the other day you just really don't want to do it? Or you just encounter these, these demons in your, in your head of, of like doubt, self doubt and, and emotions. And, and I always just think that, you know, exercise and workouts and the, the, the whole thing is like a microcosm of your entire life, all just kind of, uh, 
uh, put into whatever time domain it is, whether that's a 20 minute workout or an 11 hour workout, and you're experiencing all you're experiencing almost your full range of emotions pretty much mm-hmm. through everything. And then you can hit a flow state and you're just like, yeah, I don't even really hardly remember mile 20 through 35. And then the next thing I know, you know, everything's going great. And then something else happens and it's like, boy, but 37, 38, 39 were really, really tough. And then I hit the flow state again. I don't know. I mean, I've never run that far, but I have done lots of other, you know, uh, challenges that are 24 hours and different things like that. And there's periods in there where you're just cruising, man. And then there's times where at the end you're going faster than you were at the beginning. And, and it, it just has so much to do with, with your mind. And all of those things have taught me so much about not just how you can, how you can influence your body in, in a physical pursuit, but how you can influence your, your behavior, how you can influence your outcome, how you can influence your performance through the use of your mind and, and, and the, the training, the exercise, the workouts are like training for, for life. And you can, and it just, it just flows into there. And I find myself being able to handle other things outside of the workouts better through the lessons that I've learned. And I'm sure that you, you do the same, like with, with all of these things about how you're directing these negative thoughts and how, what kind of challenges you're going through. And then how, how does that affect your, your regular life? How do you apply all these lessons that you learn in training and races to your regular life? Yeah, I think one of the more interesting lessons that I've learned with, with ultra marathons and specific to the hundred mile distance is when you do have a race where you kind of push past previous blocks where, you know, for me, that 80 mile spot was one. And then when I did push past it, now I've kind of almost redefined uh, what I'm capable of doing, which has obviously the payoff in knowing I just, you know, I ran a race I've never run before. I redefined what I'm capable of. I showed myself and anyone who wanted to follow along what my high end is at the moment. And that's higher than it was when I started this, which is obviously a cool life achievement to have. Mm -hmm. But then it's also like this, a little bit of this, just like kind of a reminder that uh, you were able to go this far. Now, you know, you can, therefore now the expectation is that. So, so the, there's that side of it too, where I think in life, we see that as well, where, you know, maybe it's just your career where your expectations are at a certain level, the first five years of a specific, like at, at your job, and then you get a promotion. And once you get that promotion, well, now if you just do what you did to get that promotion, it's not enough. The expectations are that you're going to build on that and you're going to get to this next level and you're going to kind of keep progressing. So I think uh, taking that to those type of situations and then continue to grow after them are huge life lessons because it just really shows you how far you can get at something you put your mind to. And when you focus on it uh, and really fine tune it, how dialed in you can get. Um you know, I use it all the time in my day-to-day life, just with, especially when it comes to the planning of things where, you know, if I set a goal for myself of where I want to be in a specific aspect of my life, whether it's coaching, podcasting, uh, you know, anything like marketing for some of my sponsors and stuff like that. It's like, I, I need to find ways like, well, this is where we want to be at the end of this year or in three years. Uh, and that's great but what do I put in place along the way to both build in incentives to keep it exciting and fresh enough to want to get to that end point, 
but also give me progress checks along the way to show that we are getting there at a rate in which we need to. And you know, these are all lessons that I think I learned the first time through running and then have been able to kind of put them, place them on, place that like kind of that transparency of that process on top of like other areas of life and look at them through that lens. And that's been a very important piece and something where even if I never ran a race again, I would have that skill set or that tool set that I developed from that to be able to use in whatever I get excited about doing. And that's something I think will be, uh, uh, you know, just a really big kind of like life lesson. Yeah. Let's talk about, um, the races that you, you said you had a couple of failed attempts. Like when, when you have these failed attempts, what, what's that like? Like, is it just an injury that, that you're, you can't go on or is it, is it something in your head or is it that you got just behind enough to where you think, you know, it's not going to happen today and we're better off waiting for another time. Like what, tell me about a couple of those, those, uh, um, events and how, how they might've, uh, helped you to, to eventually get to success. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. I think, I mean, in terms of like failed attempts, those probably range from anything from, you know, an injury or something that could potentially become a bad injury. So you decide it's not worth it because a, I'm probably not going to hit my a goal with a, you know, this aggravated area anyway. So do I really want to put the rest of my season at jeopardy by pushing through it for a suboptimal performance to uh, a situation where, uh, you know, maybe I expected one thing to happen from a weather standpoint, and then I ended up being different. And I tried to stick to the original plan and that was a bad idea. So improper execution leading me into a place where I get partway through and I hadn't done the right things to that point to actually have the best day I could given the set of circumstances, uh, all the way. And then to just like, you know, like a mental lapse or mental weakness where in the moment, some of these other things are what you perceive or you use as the excuse as to why things didn't go well. But then after you've given it a few days to be able to sit down and reflect on it, you're like, you know what, in hindsight, I think I was looking for an excuse and you know, that, that light, that, that slight pain there was, was a great excuse or the fact that it was 10 degrees warmer than I expected was a bit of an excuse. Uh, and maybe I needed to bail out on my a goal, but the B goal was very much alive and I gave it up and I didn't necessarily need to, uh, so these are all things where I think by looking at those failures as not just failures, but lessons, if I can go to that and say, okay, I made a mistake there. Uh, it's a mistake where if I could go back, I would like to correct that. I can't do that. So the next best thing is to take that lesson, learn from it, apply it to a future event so that when I get in that situation again, it won't happen the way it did. And now I know that I've convinced myself I've ran through the, the process of reflecting and analyzing things that were actual problems versus perceived problems and just fine tuned it a little bit more. And all of those end up, I think, providing the, the right, the right process and the right tools to get that race where you feel like you kind of did everything right or push past those few levels you had before, like I was talking about before. And then when you have that, all of a sudden, all those previous failures don't feel like failures as much as they just feel like stepping stones or lessons. And I've been fortunate enough to have, be able to, I guess, process it that way enough times where now that to me is the norm or that's the process. So my default is, okay, something went wrong. Where's the lesson here? I need to find that out. There's some value in this, this failed attempt, even though on paper, it may not look like it right now. Therefore, if I can find that, that's going to be a gem that I can use. 
Um, and once I think you can make that kind of your default mindset, it comes a lot easier. And that just takes time and practice and probably a little bit of direct experience. It's one thing for someone to tell you that and process it and then view it like that. I think you take another like individual leap forward when you actually experience it, apply it and do it. And then realize, oh, this isn't just lip service from Zach or someone else who's saying the same thing. This is actually how this plays out. And now I have direct relation to it because I actually put it into practice. And when I see other people kind of use that and, and kind of get that experience, I think that's one of the other kind of uh, takeaways that I'll always have, regardless of, you know, how many more races I run is just like, you know, watching other people kind of use those sort of strategies and techniques and, and find some, some success from it as well. Right. Um, so how, if you were to, to have a, a race that you, you think, okay, well, this is the one I'm going to try for the new record, or I'm going to try this race or, or whatever. And, and you failed for whatever reason any of the reasons that you just said, how long would it be before you were able to try that again? Yeah. So if it's like a hundred miler, you know, sometimes it just depends on what the failure was like. So if it's something where I was pretty fit going in, I just made a bad tactical decision and that resulted in me dropping out early and not necessarily taking on the level of physical and mental like deterioration that I would by doing like an all out hundred miler where I felt like I just wrung myself dry. You know, I might be able to just you take a little bit of time off, like, you know, less than a week, maybe even, and let everything kind of catch up and then repeat with like an abbreviated buildup of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it could be even as soon as a, probably a month. And then, and then there's the scenario where like I have a race where I just nailed it and that fatigue from the race itself, as well as the preparation that I needed to do to get there was enough where I was like right up to like a, like a, a set of, or a side of fitness. That's just not going to be sustainable to hold on to for very long before you have to let it go, mm -hmm. let your body and mind recover and build up again, if you want to be at your peak. So like in a situation like that, I'm usually going to take probably at least another four months before I do another a race. Um, in re realistically, in order to get like a consistently good result, you, you can, and I've done this plenty of times where like you do something a little sooner and you, you just go in knowing it's going to be a little bit more of a coin flip because I don't know how, how much of my peak fitness I was able to hang on to. If it's a different event, then like, how does it actually even translate and all sorts of other things too. So, uh, there, that's what this, that's where the sport gets a little bit interesting. I think is like, there's just so many opportunities to do different races. And if you have a really good race, there's no shortage of other ones reaching out and saying, Hey, you want to check out this one? And it's like, right it might be a really cool event, but if it's like, ah, that's eight weeks after I just did this one, maybe I should pass on it this time around and focus on something that's, you know, four months down the road and really make sure I'm ready for it. And those are just things you kind of learn through trial and error a little bit, watching other people try to navigate those waters and see what's successful and what isn't. And kind of, uh, having a, a conversation with yourselves about what, what you're maybe capable of from a physical standpoint versus, others where your strengths and weaknesses are and what you can maybe get away with or can't get away with. Yeah. So one of the things that we haven't even discussed is also your diet, um, which I know that you're, you're very vocal about. You talk about it a lot because um, really for so long, you know, marathon runners and, and people who ran a lot were, would follow this ultra high carbohydrate diet, which you don't choose to do. And when we first talked uh, 
earlier, you were saying that you had gastrointestinal issues on, on a couple of your races where you had a lot of non-moving time. That happened to me in my race too. I believe that's why I finished three minutes slower than, than I did. And, uh, I look back at that and I'm like, man, could, could that have just been something nutritionally? I mean, I, I never thought that eating a bag full of bagels before the race was a good idea, <laughs> even though that's what every running magazine, you know, said at the time, like, you know, you can't not get too much. You need to carbo load the night before and then everything right up to the race is, And I'm like, this isn't the way that I would normally eat. Why would I do this now? And, uh, I, I try to pay a lot of attention to, to the diet as well, because you can see definite improvement in, in your performance and the way you feel and the way you sleep and all that. So how did you kind of, was the way that you're, you're eating now, like a low carb, almost keto kind of thing. Um, is that an evolution of just trying to, uh, eliminate the gastrointestinal issues or did you learn about that? What, what started you down that path? Because, or, or did you always eat kind of like that? I don't know. Yeah. I think with this one, it's like context is everything right. Where you have like a scenario, I think, especially in endurance performance where we have a lot of really well-designed studies that would point to the more carbohydrates you can get in, the better your outcome is going to be when everything happens properly, when mm -hmm. everything is controlled. So that kind of puts you in this window of if you are a professional athlete competing at a very high level, it can build your entire life around just peaking for X race. And we may have self-selected for folks who are able to tolerate a moderate to high carbohydrate diet better by looking at the research and literature and just kind of pushing that message on everybody. You know, if you're someone who's going to respond negatively to that type of a you're, you're just going to get weeded out. You're not going to get to the professional level yeah. before you have issues. Right. So, so there's a lot of moving parts with that question. So like sometimes like, you know, you'll see a lot of the, the back and forth talking about this at the uh, non ultra distance. And it just gets a little bit, a little bit goofy. Cause you know, there's always somebody who said, well, I get that. I run shorter endurance races, but then why am I PRing by going low carb? Why do I run 30 minutes faster in my marathon when I switch to low carb versus high carb? For them, it's very easy to think, well, low carb is just better and everyone should do it. Just like right. the person looking yeah. at Ilya Kipchoge and saying, well, this guy's run basically too flat in the marathon. He follows a very hard high carbohydrate diet. Therefore, everyone should do that or they won't run their best race. This guy's the world record holder after all. Mm -hmm. And uh, really it just comes down to the individual. There's going to be a lot of variables that impact your performance. One of those variables is your nutritional approach. So even if you're doing a race that on paper is going to maybe make it a little more difficult for you to run as fast as you possibly could in a perfect scenario, if the other variables that improve based on your dietary switch, and this is going to be super individual, it might be something as simple as this person just happens to be able to stick to a low carbohydrate diet easier and therefore is at a much better racing weight and a much like healthier mm -hmm. like physique going into this race. And that variables improvement was so great that it overshadowed any deficit they maybe had from not having yeah. quite as much carbohydrate availability to them. 
Uh, that's very specific though, to an intensity. That's what I like to call a gray area intensity, where it's just long enough that you can deplete your muscle glycogen, but also just fast enough that you're actually going to do a meaningful amount of dipping into your muscle glycogen. Once you get up into ultra marathon distance stuff, things that are like double digit hours long, I think there's a much bigger window of options that are neutral or in some cases an improvement from being lower on carbohydrates, just because the intensity of the race itself is low enough where we're not nearly as concerned about maximal oxygen consumption, like you'd be in a marathon. So then you also need to consider other things like digestion. You know, you go to any big city marathon or, you know, any road race essentially. And it's like a Porter potty rental company's right. dream. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, they're like, sweet, we're going to rent out 300 of these things. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's like, you know, when you, when you weigh in those options and, you know, when you look at some of the data around that, where it's essentially like a 50% chance in some of these longer endurance events where you're going to have some sort of gastrointestinal issue you have to ask yourself, like, can I actually tolerate the fueling strategy that's going to be required for me to maintain a moderate to high carbohydrate diet on race day? And, you know, some people can, you know, some people train their body physically to be able to do that. Uh, I think if you're going to be doing like they call it train the gut process, where you're essentially eating a lot of these sports products into your day-to-day life, you're eating them in basically every workout you do in order to get your body more receptive and able to process and digest them. That's great if you're doing the training and your goal is 100% performance. The average person who's going to maybe run like 30 to 40 minutes, you know, three days a week and a long run on the weekend, they probably don't want to be doing, you know, mainlining goos and sports <laughs> products, you know, at that frequency. <laughs> right. You know, and, and, and you know, the, you, you run the four miles on like a Wednesday and you, you take in two gels during it or something like that. It's like, these folks are also trying to control health. And that's probably one of the drivers for them doing this in the first place. (laughs) So it's like, for them, it's just like, that's just not really a really intriguing like scenario either. Uh, yeah. So I think really at the end of the day, what it comes down to is first, like, let's get to context at the individual individual level. What's this person's goals, where are their strengths and weaknesses, what relative, advantages or disadvantages is this dietary intervention going to have for them versus some arbitrary person that is completely irrelevant to them uh, and then start deciding. And then you can always reverse course. I think like when I'm, when I'm working with someone on this, it's like, Hey, if you're interested in trying this approach, we can do it. This is why I suspect will happen based on what I've seen with the other people I've worked with, with myself, given what you've explained to me, your specific context but if we get to a point where we know like, Hey, this is we're, we're butting our heads up against the wall here. We need to make a change. Let's be, make sure we stay open-minded enough to do it and don't get dogmatic as mm-hmm. to like, we're going to jam this square peg through a round hole, no matter what. So I think when you start kind of putting it out like that, people are a lot more receptive to it. They're a lot less uh, defensive about it because that's how it sometimes comes across. I think where you get someone who had it alter their life or their race or their performance in a drastic way. And I don't blame them for wanting to tell everyone about it. Cause it's like, it's, it's, it's a paradigm shift. Yeah. I mean, you have a paradigm shift and, and you want to share that, you know? Right. So right. 
so then you, but then you get the folks who are like maybe a little less or a little more skeptical or it didn't work for them they tried it and it was like it backfired on me and like you're telling me i have to do this or i'm a failure because it didn't work on me then you get into these really interesting kind of back and forths where it becomes like a, an ideology versus right like and then people will that you have yeah people mm-hmm. get so worked up about it like i remember when i remember when paleo was like the 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 thing it was yeah. it was so so in and that was when michael felt just dominated at the Olympics. And there was this video of him eating 13,000 calories a day. I mean, he's cramming everything he can down. And people are like, man, if that guy would just learn how to eat right, imagine how good he could be. And I'm like, what? He just won more gold medals than anyone. I think he's got it pretty well dialed in like that. That was just silly to me. And that's exactly what you're talking about, where people get so dogmatic about this approach that, that they shaved, you know, four minutes off their, off their, you know, 10 K time. And they think that that's going to, if they could do that, then Michael Phelps should be able to, should be doing that too, where like he's got a lifetime of, of people and scientists and himself experimenting on him. And he has hit his peak. Obviously he's the best in the world. He just proved it 13 times over and, and they're critical of his diet. (laughs) Yeah. That's that's just kind of funny to me. I don't know. It's kind of funny. And and the same with you, like people are critical of, of your diet. Like, Oh, I don't know how you could do it with no carbohydrates. Well, maybe you couldn't do it with no carbohydrates, but he's done it and continues to do it. And, and is, the world champion and and record holder like it's obviously working maybe we could learn something from that and maybe you don't go as deep into it as he has as you have but maybe some of that could apply to someone else's training and they could get something really good out of it or maybe it doesn't work for you at all i don't know but i just think that's kind of that's kind of an interesting place with your coaching like are you coaching like regular people or do you coach only elite athletes or racers or only runners? What do you, what do you do? Because what, one of the things that you're talking about is your understanding of how, how your, 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 uh, body works and where you're getting this energy from and how much you're burning and, and, and the way that you're burning at these different time domains, it seems like you could, you could, um, coach other sports and, and, and kind of at least work with people to understand what's going on in their body. And then let's try to figure out the best approach. Have you done that from through other sports like long distance swimming or, or, you know, triathlon or anybody else come to you and talk to you about nutrition? Yeah, I'll do, I'll do a lot of that through my consultation. Usually that's kind of an interesting avenue of my coaching business because it does open up the door for other athletes that are not, you know, running ultra marathons or even, I mean, I can coach a 5k runner, no problem as well. But like, yeah, if someone who's coming to me from like triathlon or swimming, they're not going to get a whole lot of value out of me sitting there and programming their workout, Right. (laughs) but they may get some value out of me programming or helping them program like their macronutrient ratios and the timing of that, as well as different things like, you know, electrolyte, where's the starting points with that and their fluid and all that other things that are kind of transferable from one sport to the next. Uh, so I do see a little more range in that. I still definitely see more folks that are, uh, running ultras or, uh, distance, like endurance running distance type stuff from 5k to marathon. Uh, I get a lot more, I would say just like hobby runners than I do like real Hmm. top end runners for the most part. I get a lot of those, a lot of the, like when I'm, especially with, when it's like my personalized coaching, those are mostly folks who are like 
you know, maybe they've got a successful business, but they're also mindful of their passions outside of work. And they find running to be a vehicle in which they can express that. And, you know, they want me to draw them up a coaching pen specific to the race they're doing. And, uh, or they, you know, they've got a, a job a family, kids and all that stuff. And they're like, I've got nine hours per week that I've set aside to build up for this race. I want you to take what you know and build a program within that framework in order for me to be at my best possible place, given my life circumstances and <laughs> things that I prioritize throughout the day and the week and the, the months leading into the race itself. So that's kind of really an exciting side of things is working with folks from either kind of the back of the pack, the middle pack, and occasionally some of the folks near the front of the pack uh, on that variety of different stuff. So um, it is interesting. I think sometimes people think like, well, he probably only coaches folks that are, you know, winning races or finishing on the podium. And I always chuckle about that because it's actually quite a bit more folks who are, you know, they're looking for a PR, which is just as much of a challenge sometimes. Um, but, uh, I, I think my sweet spot is working with folks who have more obligations outside of just the running side of thing yeah. itself. than it is having someone who's got the flexibility to essentially focus the majority of their time and energy on perfecting said workout and ultimately race. Yeah. Well, there's a guy that, um, I don't know when you're talking about all the, the stuff that you've learned through ultra marathon, um, Chris Henshaw in the CrossFit world, he was a, mm. he was a, um, a really, I think he got second place in the world, Ironman and, uh, a, a very accomplished Ironman athlete. And he, um, was contacted by one of the CrossFitters, Jason Kalipa. And he started looking at what he was doing and started to apply some of his training principles and is like, well, you know, I see what you're doing. And if you can do this, then you would be able to, you know, really, it wasn't about you need to do more work or it wasn't even about you need to do more recovery. It was about let's teach your body to get rid of this lactic acid faster. And these are some things that I've learned through triathlon that have worked and they're probably going to work over here. And it was incredibly successful. Jason Kalipa uh, went back and and did amazing at the CrossFit Games. And he worked with Rich Froning, who was the four-time champion. He worked with Matt Frazier, who was the five-time champion. And he has become, I mean, it has changed a lot of the training protocols in, in, um, in CrossFit because he has been able to apply something that came from a different sport and applied some of those principles here. And what you're talking about, like with the way that you know how the human body works, uh, and, and as well as nutrition, you know, with nutrition, it seems like, you know, in one of these sports, it is going to really, I mean, maybe it's CrossFit, maybe it's swimming, maybe it's triathlon. I don't know, but it seems like there is, there is going to be one of those sports where the things that you've learned in these much, much longer time domains, um, will, will apply wonderfully and probably have somebody performing really, really well. And maybe in an unexpected sport, like, like CrossFit, like who would think mm-hmm. that ultra marathoning yeah. <laughs> and CrossFit would have something, you know, in common or powerlifting or something like that. But it's like, you know, y- your electrolytes are super important. Your nutrition is super important. And if you can get those things perfect, you're going to do better. Like there's no question about it. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that I heard you talk about on one of the podcasts was one of your training runs and I think you said that you went through 500 ounces of water. Is that, is that possible? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, I think the question is how well my body did processing it more than anything. It was, uh, yeah, I was doing, well, I mean, I live in Phoenix. So this time of year, it's always like, if you're going to do any like big efforts, 
and stay in town for it, you're going to hit hundred plus degree temps. So there's really no way around it. Um, yeah. And I was doing, uh, um, a simulation for, for, a, for the transcontinental project, which I, I postponed due to a little injury I picked up, unfortunately, but it'll happen eventually, just maybe not on the timeline that I expected it to. But regardless, I was preparing for it before that, assuming it was going to happen in September. And, and I, I had myself in a situation where I was running, I, th- I can't remember how far exactly I was going that day. I think it was maybe like somewhere in the neighborhood of eight to 10 hours or something like that. I think and, you said it was going to be like um, 40 miles and you did, okay. you did a portion of it outside and then you came in and finished it up on the treadmill. And you yeah. were saying that on the outside portion alone, you went through 500 ounces. I think I heard it correctly. And I was like, 500 ounces? That's like four <laughs> gallons of water. <laughs> uh-huh. And that's when electrolytes are huge because you're right. putting that much fluid through your system. Like you can easily dilute your electrolytes when you're processing that much. Or, I mean, your body's going to do a very good job of like regulating how low it lets that go. But the way it's going to do that eventually is by tanking your performance. So, uh, uh, you know, making sure you're having enough electrolytes in it. And I think some people forget about that, where, uh, I usually like to start with about five to 700 milligrams of electrolytes per liter of fluid. So like when you say of electrolytes, are you using something like a hammer nutrition product or some kind of product that, that like they have that endurolytes, that's the one that I use. Are you using something like a, a, an electrolyte product or are you doing it, um, through food or what are you, how are you getting it? Yeah. It tends to be a combination of things and you can, you can count it through anything. So like usually I'll start with, well, what am I going to eat? during this effort and then account for the electrolytes that are included in that and add that to kind of my baseline. And then depending on how much fluid I take in, it's going to be, I'm going to need to tie five to 700 additional milligrams for every liter of water that I take in on top of whatever I've already kind of accounted for. So, you know, when you get up to the neighborhood of 500 ounces, you're, you're using quite a bit, but yeah. Yeah. I'll use, there's a ton of different electrolyte like supplements that you can use. I've been using a product by a company called element. They make these like little tiny packets that have like, I think it's like 1200 milligrams of electrolytes with a thousand milligrams of sodium in it. So like one of those can go for about two liters. And on that particular workout you were talking about, I had been, I was wearing a pack with a little bladder in the back of it. Mm-hmm. So I put like two liters of water in that and a packet of the element in there and then just drink the thirst at that point. And then when that ran out, I reload it with the same, uh, same ratio of electrolyte to water and then keep going. And that just happened to get me to 500 ounces that day. (laughs) So when, when, when like with what we do, we're fishing in the Florida Keys. It's super hot. It's, it's active. It's very humid. You're sweating all day. You're going through gallons of water, just like what you're talking about. You're not running, but it would be not crazy to, to drink two gallons of water in a day. Mm -hmm. So with your electrolyte, um, consumption that's super important and what is happening when like you're saying your performance is tanking it's really easy to see when you're running like all of a sudden now you're running two minutes slower than you were before but what if you're just like fishing like hanging out drinking so much water pushing all this through where where is the the um the indication that your electrolytes are low like what would happen to you yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, you're going to get some of the same symptoms. It might just not be quite as like drastic upfront where when you're trying to run through things like lethargy and fatigue, it's just going to be that much more painstaking. Whereas it might creep up on you a little more where you notice like, 
oh, I'm starting to get a little more tired. I'm starting mm-hmm. to get sleepy. I don't have as much energy. I feel like my arms are just like weighing me down. Or like if you're sitting up and standing, standing up and sitting down a bit, like you're just unmotivated to do that sort of things. Those are some of the signs that I think can show up. And, you know, for something like fishing, I think like it's almost more important to pay attention to in the sense that it's going to be a little harder to recognize it Yeah. because of that. And it may just be something like, okay, I've been out here for four hours we haven't had a lot of luck today. I'm going to call it versus I'm going to give it 30 more minutes. And I hit that spot and we catch some really great fish right. or something like yeah. that. So that's kind of where the, performance so it's like a happens. mental fog that you would mm-hmm. have, or kind of like a, it, or, or would it be fatigue? Like, like sometimes, I don't know, in my workouts right now, I work out in the morning. I'll go through a half a gallon of water by, uh, if I start at five, I'll be done with a half a gallon of water at seven. And then mm-hmm. I will drink another half gallon of water before 11. And then I'll continue drinking stuff all day long. And I do supplement with the Endurolites, but oftentimes I get really tired. Like, and I've always wondered, like, is, could that be an electrolyte shortage? Um, or is that something else? I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to tell for sure because like fatigue can be influenced by a variety of different things. But uh, assuming everything else is constant and you're getting a little low on electrolytes, then I would imagine like fatigue would be the the symptom that you would notice. And I find it like just it's just interesting where you know it'll be like you know kind of like you described middle of the afternoon, and normally I'd be motivated enough to like you know stay on top of myself, be very mm-hmm. efficient. Mm-hmm. That stuff just kind of like moves down a notch where now, like, instead of it taking me like 15 minutes to finish a task, it takes me 30 because I'm kind of like hmm. just mulling around, like yeah. <laughs> not necessarily focusing the way I would, if I was just had that laser focus. And, you know, sometimes I've noticed it where, uh, like I'll notice it more readily when it's something like that, where I'm feeling just a little lethargic, a little unmotivated, a little more tired. And I'll, I'll, drink like a liter of water with some electrolytes in it. And then it's like five minutes later, it's like, Oh, boom. It's like, yeah. almost felt like I had a cup of coffee in the morning. It like, does okay, hit you very it. quickly. Mm-hmm. It, like, it's like, like, yeah, I must just been a little behind. And yeah. yeah. Uh, we I did this one, um, event called uh seal fit Kokoro. It was a 48 hour or 50 hour thing where you go train with these Navy seals and they, they were careful. They gave us an electrolyte water. Uh, like we were only to get water from their source. They had electrolytes in the water and I never had any problem. But then there was another event called go ruck selection where they only gave you plain water. You couldn't drink You couldn't replace anything. There was no food. And the difference was incredible. I mean, mm-hmm. you were flat. I mean, really, really flat. Everyone was. And then the, the reward, if you made it 24 hours is they gave you one bottle of Gatorade and the people (laughs) that got there drank that one Gatorade. And it's like, wow, you know, like you say, like a cup of coffee, it's like, it's like even better. It's like, Oh my God, that's like the lifeblood right there. The electrolytes. Best tasting Gatorade they ever had. Absolutely. (laughs) But the, the electrolytes are such an important thing. And, and I never know like what the appropriate balance is. I just always like, you know, if I'm drinking a ton of water, I will, uh, supplement, but I don't know like how many I should, should be doing or exactly what, like you've got it down to a science. You put this one pack in your, in your bladder and you feel like that's going to be, be really good. But, um, I don't know. That's something I need to work on is certainly on the, on the electrolyte balance, but I know what it feels like when you're out of balance and it's not, it's not pleasant at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, it is interesting. I think the five to 700 milligrams per liter is, is a starting point that they recommend for like single day ultra marathons when it's uh, essentially kind of like normal temperatures. But the reason I like that is because then I just drink to thirst after that. And if I'm drinking more because it's warmer, then I'm just, if I'm, if every liter of water I'm consuming due to thirst has that additional five to 700 milligrams, I'm kind of raising that as I increase my fluid intake versus saying I need like X number of electrolytes per hour, but then each hour is like a drastically different range of fluid intake. That seems that doesn't really square out often. So, um, that's kind of just a good starting point. And you're going to have a range of people who are like, uh, heavy sweaters that lose higher rates of electrolytes in their sweat versus people who are their body is less likely to, to lose as much. And, and you can get tests done that will kind of tell you mm-hmm. that, um, like I a pee test or what? Yeah. I've never done one myself, but, uh, you can, uh, you go in, I, I'm not exactly sure what the process is like, but essentially they take, they take a sample and they can tell you like, based on your sweat rate, this is how much electrolyte you can assume that you're going to lose per hour. If you're sweating at like a, you know, a specific level or something like that. And, and I guess then you could start like running numbers where like, if I lose X, X, like pounds of water per hour in this temperature, I'm shot. I should probably ballpark this much electrolyte. Um, the nice thing is, like I said before, your body is very good at regulating that. So it doesn't have to be super exact as long as you're not like way off, you're probably going to be okay. You're not going to notice massive performance issues. So it's when you have a situation where someone is drinking water consistently with no electrolytes or, or just not drinking at all or something like Mm -hmm. that, where they're going to probably run into issues. What about the color of your pee? Like, is that a, is that a good indicator of electrolyte or good, just a good indicator of hydration in your opinion? Yeah. You know, I think that's, been one of the things where I think they thought there was a pretty good correlation there at one time between like, if you have like a really dark urine, then you're really dehydrated versus like perfectly clear. You're like overhydrated. Yeah. And I, I think there's some like general truth to that, but there's a lot of scenarios in which it can be wrong. So you don't necessarily want to like lean your entire process onto that. So, uh, yeah. So I think you, there's, there's, there's a little bit of like variance there, context there that would be needed. Um, I think like generally speaking, if, if you're, if you're in a warm environment and you're just not going to the bathroom at all for long periods of time, that's probably a pretty good indication that you're behind. Or if you're in like any environment and you're peeing every 45 minutes, chances are you're just, you're, you're going way past what you would technically need. Hmm. Um, so any, anytime your body probably deviates from the routine that you would normally have when you're kind of functioning at like an optimal level, uh, I would say you're probably heading outside the range of what, what you want to be doing. So whether you're running all day long, uh, like if I were, if I were sitting at my desk all day long, just working on the computer or running all day long, either one of those scenarios is less than ideal. If I never once get up to go to the bathroom. Mm, <laughs> so, yeah. so it's like, uh, it is one of those things where I think you can, there's a little bit of just kind of intuition there. Um, and if you kind of know like, well, when I'm feeling hydrated on a daily basis, you know, this is kind of the frequency I can expect. Uh, so if I'm deviating too far from that, then chances are I'm behind or ahead of whatever I'm trying to kind of target. Gotcha. Um, so you're, you're coaching, do you ever, uh, coach people on, on like 
overcoming injuries and, and stuff like that? I mean, obviously people are getting injured when they're, when they're trying to, to hit a PR or something like that, but do you help people with that too? Yeah, it usually depends. Like this is runs along the line with nutrition as well, where there's like a level of support that I can offer uh, based on just like what I know from being in the sport, as long as I have been. And, and just like having maybe a surface level understanding of a wide variety of things that someone who's brand new is going to have none of Mm -hmm. where I can kind of direct them in the right direct, put, turn them in the right direction, or at least share with them kind of what the, the population level, like advice would be on a specific topic. Right. But then ultimately, like if it gets to us, there, there's certain things where it's like, there's people who spend years and years learning about specific body parts operating in a specific way that are going to have a lot better of an understanding of what is going on in this person's unique situation. So, you know, if someone comes to me and is like, well, I've been having this, this pain in the back of my back of my ankle. And it's been bothering me for a couple of weeks now. And it's like, it's tight in the morning. It loosens up a little bit. Of course today I can direct them and say, you know, you may have aggravated like your Achilles tendon and you should probably just scale back on the volume and intensity of your training a bit and let that kind of settle down a bit. Uh, if it keeps bothering you doing, avoid the activities where it bothers you try to get some mobility in the area. So there is some blood flow heading down there. You know, that sort of like advice that isn't going to necessarily do damage. So what, think, what would you do if somebody gave you that advice and you were, you were getting ready for your hundred mile race? Well, I would definitely double down and start training twice as hard. Yeah. See, that's <laughs> what I mean. <laughs> like the doctor told me not to do it. Well, you should definitely do more than because <laughs> yeah, that's I what mean, always was, happens. Like somebody's so excited about running or somebody's so excited about this activity that they're doing and they love it and they get injured and then they go to the doctor and the doctor's like, uh-huh. yeah, you shouldn't do that anymore. It's like, oh, that's not what I wanted to hear. That's not at all what I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear that you yeah. can work through this, that you can you can make it, you know, I don't know, give me a cortisone shot, something. You want to, mm-hmm. you definitely want to do this race. And I mean, there's a fine line of like discomfort that's just part of the game yeah. versus discomfort that's just going to get worse. So some of that you do kind of learn over time where, like, I know if I go out and I have like a little bit of an ache or a pain somewhere and it loosens up over the course of the run, chances are I've got something tight that is impacting that area. The hard part sometimes is just like, well, what is that? So like, for example, I have a little bit of pain underneath my knee when I go out for a, a, an afternoon run, but it just loosens up and goes away after a mile. Uh, it's like, it's easy to think like, well, maybe there's a little bit of tendonitis under my knee, maybe mm-hmm. not. And you, when you get down to it, you find out like, oh, I've got really tight hips and those tight hips are pulling on the, you know, pulling on my tendons and ligaments in a way that's creating a little bit of discomfort under my knee. But once that loosens up, uh, so then, then the next question is like, well, what's causing that? Well, right. people, people are sitting a lot during the day. So running, you have the forward lean, which is going to kind of stretch your hip flexors out a little bit more versus sitting where they're going to collapse in you collapse them in for long periods of times, they get comfortable in that more compressed point. Whereas now you go running and you're stretching them beyond what is even like an upright position. It's just going to take a little bit for that to loosen up. So mm-hmm. it's like, what can I do to loosen that up before I go out for a run? So I'm not using the first couple miles to do it. And then you start looking at things like stretches for your hip flexors and things like that. And I mean, you, I think people who do the sport long enough, they find out areas of their body that tend to be problem areas. And there's some problem areas that tend to be a little more universal with runners versus mm-hmm. other sports. And you get to know those areas of your body and what parts trigger them and what parts like loosen up. You can do a fair bit of self um, self-recovery tactics and, you know, that sort of stuff. And, uh, yeah, sometimes for me, what usually happens is 
if it's manageable, I'll, I'll work it out myself. If it gets to the point where it's not, I'll go see a professional and they'll, they'll fill me in on where it's actually wrong versus where I expected it to be wrong. Yeah, right. And then I have a little bit of a roadmap as to how to manage it on my own, as well as whatever like service I would need from them. Gotcha. So how did you hook up with buff? Yeah, they reached out to me after 2019. I had been kind of using some of their products and products uh, similar to what they like specialize in. And uh, yeah, they wanted to partner up and, you know, some of the stuff that they've made over the last couple of years has been pretty cool. I know, uh, especially now being out in Phoenix, it's funny because, you know, you get these hot days and people think like you want to get rid of as many clothes as you can possibly get rid of because you're in this really hot heat when in reality, that direct sun like that. And you can probably appreciate this with fishing when you're out there all day in the direct sun, direct sun on your skin is less efficient actually at cooling. In fact, like the topical cooling mechanisms that your body would produce in that direct kind of dry sun heat is, is not, is you're going to overheat quicker having your skin exposed. So um, Casey at buff was telling me about the arm sleeves that they have this technology there where it actually helps kind of keep that skin cooler, even though you're putting a layer of something over it. Right. And then, and then on top of it, you have that plus like, I'll like use those to like put ice down there. So like topical cooling is a much more efficient way to bring your core temperature down than say drinking cold water or something like that. So anytime you have something that can get wet and hold on to water or something you can jam ice into in those really hot, dry climates, you're going to keep your core temp down a lot longer. So using like the, the head or the neck buffs to like hold ice or even just keep wet. So it's like staying wet, damp and dripping on you and stuff like that is just a great resource out in the dry, the dry heat. And then, uh, you know, face coverings and things like that. So I'm not just blistering my forehead and nose. Do you (laughs) run with a, do you run with, with the buff on your face sometimes? I'll use my, my standard will be a visor since my hair is long enough where I don't have to worry about my head right. getting burnt. Yeah. Just so wait. The, you'll, yeah. you'll, you'll have a, mine used to be too. And all of a sudden one day you come back and you're like, I don't know what is the problem, but my head is, it hurts. Yeah. I think well, that, I think I might've bumped it somewhere. And then you're like, yeah. no, I just got sunburned. That's the end of the visor for me. <laughs> Funny story about that. I used a visor and a headband at the road hundred mile national championships this year. And I did a really good job of skin protection. So I got very little burning during that event. But the one thing that I didn't account for was I had just gotten my hair cut. So my hair was yes, really short I know. and I was dumping <laughs> water on my head all day. And since that caused it like, like different, like grooves to separate or parts uh-huh. to separate. So I had a few lines on my head where my scalp was partially exposed all day long that got burnt. And then those like two to three days after I was like, why is my head hurt? Yes. And then, and then I started like having like skin peel up there. I was like, I've never had an issue with dandruff before. Why is my hair flaking? And then I realized after that, I was like, Oh, I just burnt my head. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, you do have to worry about that to to some degree too, but usually I can get away with a visor. So I'm covering my face and still leaving my head open. Um, I'll usually put a neck, a neck buff on to hold water, keep the back of my neck from getting burnt, the front of my neck from getting burnt and stuff like that. And then if it's really hot, I'll actually jam ice in there and roll it up in like a tube. And then that, that ice melts over a little bit longer period of time, keeps you Mm. cool longer, creates a little bit more drippage down your chest and back. So it doesn't just dry up right away. Like your sweat does in these dry climates. Like I said, the arm sleeves are great to cover from this, from this direct sun, as well as you can jam ice down those too. 
those are, those are usually my go-tos. Yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, I found the buff really early and, and it was not available in any fishing stores at all. And I just, I was like, we were wearing like bandanas and stuff. And <laughs> in worse, we were wearing like big, big floppy hats. And, you know, it's often very windy down there. So the hat, they don't call it a floppy hat for nothing. It's blowing up yeah. and blowing off and blowing everywhere. And so exactly. when I got the buff and put it on with a baseball cap, I was like, this is better. And then you covered up and, and all the clients, nobody had ever seen that before. I used to get stopped by the Marine patrol. They were like, what are you doing out here today? It's every guide in the Florida keys. Every guide wears one at, at some point, uh, every mate, lots of people, even the road workers out there, you see people working on the road. They've all got buffs on because it is just a better way just to cover your skin and you don't you don't get burned but you also are cooler just like you say and if you look at any kind of desert culture in the world that is the dress they're like covered in white yeah you know all the way from head to toe and mm -hmm. um anyway that's that's been great with with buff they've come out with so many different um sun protective uh, products that are, that are awesome, but, um, it's cool about the ice in the, in the arm sleeve. I'll have to try that. I, mm -hmm. I would get them wet, you know, but I don't, I've never put ice in there. Yeah. Yeah. They just adds a little, it just kind of elongates the, how long they stay damp, which helps that topical cooling a little bit. Cause, cause when you think about it, like the reason your body cools from sweat is the evaporating right. process of right. it. So the more liquid you have on there to evaporate, the cooler you can stay, but the, the arm sleeves are interesting too. Cause I know they, like when, when Casey will send me over the, the catalog, I'll always look through it, just the whole thing. And I'll see the fishing stuff. And I saw they had uh, arm sleeves that had like insect repellent. Yeah. <laughs> and I was thinking to myself, like, that makes so much sense. I remember when I would go fishing, when I lived in Wisconsin, it was pretty muggy oh, there man. too. And there's lots of mosquitoes up there. Oh yeah. You, I, we, I'd go out, like we'd be like walleye fishing at night on a lake and there'd just be like you just feeling these bugs everywhere and you didn't really realize how many there were until you like shine a flashlight on your buddy and you just see like this cloud of insects <laughs> around them. <laughs> I would imagine that some places in Wisconsin, um, there's this place in Yellowstone national park called slough Creek. It's, it can be terrible. I mean, you look in the oh. front, in front of you and there are just mosquitoes all over the back, but the, but the <laughs> king of all, the king of all places is the Everglades for the mosquitoes. Uh, it, the, the Everglades, when you go to the Everglades and see the mosquitoes there and just the, the heat and, and you're, you, you don't have air conditioning and you're just like, man, this is a rough place to live. This would be yeah. really rough. That's the way the whole state of Florida was before they sprayed for mosquitoes, before they had air conditioning, Florida wasn't the vacation capital of the world. I mean, most people <laughs> did not want to go there. So those two things of spraying for mosquitoes and getting air conditioning, that really changed everything in the state of Florida. But I mean, man, it was, it's, it's not a pleasant place. So you want, you want as much, uh, bug protection as you can possibly get, because there is no <laughs> joke there. It is, it is serious. Um, but listen, man, uh, I, I have so many questions and, and so many different um, things I'd love to ask you about training philosophy. We're never going to get to it in one, one podcast. I hope we can do this again. I'm really fascinated yeah. with, with your mindset and your approach and, and, and the way maybe that, that, that I could take some of the things that you've learned and apply them to, to what I do. Um, it's just, it's, it's fascinating whether that's fishing and electrolytes or whether the CrossFit world or, or whatever. I just think that you're, you're really onto something and you're in this, you're in this, um, unique 
position of a training ground, just like we were talking about, like in, in some ways it's so much different than somebody that can just get reps on a football and, and practice, you know, not fumbling the snap and they can do that over and over and over again. But you're, you're in this much, much longer time domain and it's really hard to replicate. But at the same time, you have this opportunity to be, to be, uh, experimenting on the human body, like all of these other sports are not able to. And I just think that there's going to be some, some really profound kind of understanding of what's going on in the human body coming from, from you and what you're doing. And I just think it's fascinating. So man, kudos to you and thanks for coming on the podcast. If somebody wanted to get coaching, if somebody wanted to follow you, what do they do? Yeah. First, thanks for having me on. It's been a blast Tom. I love talking about this stuff with folks and it's always cool to, to hear from, from people who are, have a, a huge drive in a different area that others would maybe think aren't necessarily comparable, but, <laughs> uh, it's great to chat. And yeah, for folks who want to reach out to me, um, and in capacity, kind of the one-stop area is my website at zachbitter.com that links to my coaching services, podcasts, social media channels, and things like that. And probably most active on Instagram, which is just at Zach Bitter. Um, but you can follow me on Twitter and Facebook as well, if you want. Right on. So you, you said that you're, you're going to postpone the, the transcontinental run. Yeah. Unfortunately I aggravated my, my right ankle a few weeks back and uh, it was, it was bad enough where I had to take a, a few days off and then it was just like really tight after that. So I, I went and got an MRI given the project I had on the schedule. I right. wanted to make sure there wasn't anything structural. And uh, I actually had two like partially torn ligaments kind of <laughs> on each side of my ankle bone on my right side. So, uh, I need to take a little bit of time off for that. And I actually just recently was down in Austin and got some stem cells put in there and that seems to help quite a bit. So I've been able to get back into training this last week, but I have to do like a really kind of gradual buildup <laughs> just to make sure I don't re-aggravate it. So given transcon's an interesting one where if you want to have like as much luck as possible with weather and things like that, like September early to mid September is like this tight window. You kind of got to start on. So since I essentially missed my peak training buildup due to the ankle issue, and then I'd be pushing right up to the start of it without even knowing for sure if it would hold up over it, like everyone involved decided it'd be smart just to kind of postpone it to a different year versus yeah. going in <clears throat> so far. So was that going to be a supported run or a self-supported run? Yeah, it was going to be supported the whole, the whole deal where you kind of have an RV following you along and you're sleeping yeah. in there and then getting up and you know, spending the majority of each day, just moving very slowly as, as, uh, consistently as possible. Yeah. So I noticed on your Instagram, uh, when I checked it this morning, I think you were, um, saying that you're doing a lot of cycling, uh, as well as running. So is that because of the ankle injury or, or. Yeah. So I had, a I didn't really necessarily need significant reduction in volume and training load from just a sustainability standpoint. Uh, in terms of being able to do a, say a race, like in the second part of the year here. So I'm trying to maintain a little bit of fitness without necessarily getting too aggressive with the impact of running. And as I'm kind of building back into it, I'm kind of going to do a dual strategy of doing as I'm building up my running, having some cycling alongside and I'll gradually phase the cycling out and introduce more running as the, the, I get more strength in that ankle and get it to a point where I can trust it to be able to get me through a, a full day of, of running and that sort of stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's been kind of an interesting little side piece to the training puzzle this time around that hasn't historically been there at this capacity, which is kind of like we talked about before there's, there's positives in everything. And it's kind of fun to, to explore that side or use that tool that I yeah. wouldn't have normally used. 
Well, that leads me to the last question, which is, as you're injured right now, you, you have to back off on training. You have to, um, you, you know, you, you have to back off. And for a guy like you, I, I'm pretty sure I know the answer. Is it harder to run a hundred miles or is it harder to back off on your training? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely, at first it's harder to back off training. I think like what I try to do a lot of times is inevitably every time I get into like a real big buildup for a race, I'm sinking like 20 hours a week into like running mobility, strength and all the stuff that comes into it. There'll be things where I'm like, man, I'm spending so much time doing this. If I wasn't doing this, I could do this, that, and the other thing. And I, you, you start to gather a list of stuff that, that you would have uh, maybe wanted to focus a little more time on or pay a little more attention to. And you just got to kind of keep those kind of close to you so that when these type of things happen, you're like, okay, I've got some options here that are going to entertain me in the meantime and keep me distracted from, you know, the lack of running and that you, you can, you can uh, gain some value from those. And then when you do get the running back up, it is, it's, it doesn't feel like you were just sitting there uh, biting your nails the whole time, so to speak. Yeah. I can imagine you're, <laughs> you, you might be a hard person to deal with if you, if you can't run or cycle or something <laughs> like, you know, I mean, everybody that does, does these kind of pursuits that, that has this endurance, um, kind of obsession, man, when it goes away, you're like a freaking, um, you should be in a padded room. Like, yeah, uh, it, I've, I've, I've been much worse about it in the past. I fortunately just had so little times where I've been hurt for any meaningful amount of time where I haven't had to deal with it too much, but, uh, yeah, you know, I think you, it's like anything you, you go through these processes a few times and you realize like what's going to actually bear fruit and what are, what is just creating more problems than solutions. And yeah. you realize, uh, you know, sitting around complaining about it, isn't going to do anything. And then you, you find ways to fill that time instead. And, that the, the, the side, the side uh, benefit there is it doesn't aggravate the wife nearly as much when you're keeping yeah. busy versus See? <laughs> complaining. See, there's another, there's another metaphor life. for life that comes from training and, and, uh, <laughs> sitting around complaining about something doesn't do anyone any good, you or anybody else. <laughs> but anyway, Zach, man, thanks for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And, uh, man, we'll do it again. I'd love to, I'd love to catch up before you do this, uh, this transcontinental race and see, see what that's all about. And, uh, man, good luck with everything. Good luck with your training and, and, uh, we'll be following and watching. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks, Tom. And uh, definitely anytime you want me to come on, let me know. I'd be, be thrilled to come back. Okay, great. Thank you. All right. We'll see you, Zach. All right. Take care.